Let's open this morning with a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you again and we thank you again for your goodness, your mercy, your grace. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your gospel, that it has come to our community many years ago, Lord, and that many here today are your children, God. And as we gather together to study your word, I pray that you would give me clarity of thought, give me wisdom as I speak your word, Lord, that we might grow and that your truth might be proclaimed. Amen. So a few weeks ago, I did the uh, prologue to First Peter, where we looked at kind of the theme of the book. And Peter focuses a lot on the suffering of the church. And the church was being persecuted, as we mentioned there, during the time of Nero's reign. People were, Christians were rolled in pitch and burnt as candles. They were, animals were skinned alive put on the backs of the believers and they were thrown to the wild animals as entertainment. And it was during this time that the gospel was spreading throughout the land and Peter was writing this letter of encouragement to them as many were experiencing suffering and martyrdom for their faith. This would have only been approximately 30 years after Christ Himself was on the earth, was persecuted, suffered, and died, and rose again. So it was a fairly new faith, if I can put it that way, at this time. So obviously a lot of stuff still needed to be said and done and taught through these letters. So as we look into First Peter chapter 1, we'll be looking at the first two verses here this morning. But let's read, starting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So here's Peter's salutation to the churches that he was writing to. The churches dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So who is Peter? Let's look a little bit at who the Apostle Peter was. We won't go into too much detail, but we do want to establish a little bit who our author is. Peter, and although there have been a few commentators that have questioned the Petrine authorship of this letter, by far the majority affirm the claim of the letter itself in verse 1, that the epistle was indeed authored by the Apostle Peter. The time and the events addressed within the body of this epistle indicate the time, as we mentioned, of Nero's reign, and it does coincide with the time of Peter's martyrdom in Rome. And thus, it leaves us today, along with the author's own claim, no reason to doubt that Peter himself was the author. Some of the claims made are more vague, that Peter may not have been the author, but Church history has always held to Peter as being the author of this letter. So who was Peter? He was believed to be the leader amongst the apostles. This is indicated by the fact that in the Gospels, in Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, as well as in Acts chapter 1, the writers always place Peter's name first when they list the apostles, and they don't keep any of the others in any apparent order. Also, the Gospels give us more information about Peter than any other person other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Peter was originally known as Simon, and as we've seen in other readings and stuff, speaking of Simon, Simon Peter, and he was the son of Jonah, who was also named John. Matthew chapter 16, verse 17 says, And Jesus answered him, speaking of Simon Peter, Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, meaning he was the son of Jonah. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 42, and we'll look at that verse in a minute here, um, Peter's father is also named John. He was a member of a family of fishermen who lived in Bethsaida and later in Capernaum. Peter's brother Andrew brought him to Christ. And if we turn to John chapter 1, we see a little bit more of Peter here. In John chapter 1, verse 40 to 42, I'll read it here. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Both of these names, Cephas and Peter, mean rock or stone in Aramaic and Greek. The name Peter is the Greek name Petros, which means stone, a smaller rock, where a bigger rock is called Petros. So there's a word play there. Cephas has the same meaning as Peter, just in the Aramaic language. Peter was married. Mark chapter 1, verse 30 speaks of Simon's mother-in-law. And it seems his wife traveled with him in his ministry, according to Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Here Paul says, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles, and the brother of the Lord and Cephas? So we see Peter had a wife, he was married, and she traveled with him in his ministry. Peter also identifies himself in verse 1 as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In the exegetical guide to the Greek New Testament, Greg W. Forbes writes, An apostle is an emissary who operates with the full authority of the one whom he sent. And in the New Testament, this term apostle is used in three different senses. Sometimes when we read in the New Testament, we'll read the word messenger. And if we go back to the original language, it is the same word, apostolos. So we see several different senses in which it is written or that it is used, sorry. The first one is a general sense of a messenger that has been sent. We see that used in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, as well as Philippians chapter 2. The second sense in which it is used is of those who had received a commission from Jesus Christ or the local church. So this we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, James, the Lord's brother. We see it in Romans chapter 16, verse 7, and Andronicus and Junia. That is how that word is used there. In this sense, we're speaking more of what we would commonly speak of as missionaries. They were, um, sorry. Then the, the third sense in which the word is used is specifically of the twelve, as it speaks of in Matthew and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as well, and then also of Paul, as in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 1 as well as in Galatians chapter 1, 11 and 12. They have been commissioned directly by Jesus for the proclamation of the gospel. And we know Peter to be one of these twelve, and we know he speaks with the authority of one commissioned directly by Jesus. A few weeks ago, a month ago, whenever the last time when Rob did the message in Colossians in the opening verses, speaking of Paul being the apostle, he went through the biblical qualifications of being an apostle. So I would, rather than spend time on that this morning, point you to that. If you do want to revisit what those biblical qualifications were for this third sense, speaking of the twelve as well as Paul, that were commissioned again directly by Jesus for the proclamation of this gospel. Peter was one of the twelve, and he speaks with authority as one commissioned directly by Jesus. Peter mentions in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, verse 1, so in chapter 5, verse 1, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Acts chapter 3, verse 15, Luke writes of Peter, You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, and to this we are witnesses. This was Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3. So we see in his letter as well as in his sermon, he is attesting to be a witness of the risen Christ, a witness to the sufferings of Christ, to his death, and also to his resurrection. So We know to be personal witness of Jesus' sufferings, resurrection, was one of these qualifications to be an apostle commissioned by Jesus. So we recognize Peter establishing his authority early on in this letter, which would call to attention the rest of what he would have to say. So imagine for a second with me, you're one of the recipients of this epistle. You're one of the elect exiles of the dispersion. And you've heard about all the sufferings and persecutions by other Christians. Word maybe has reached from Rome 
and told you about the martyrdom of so many believers under Nero's reign. Or perhaps you yourself have endured these things. Or have family members who may have been martyred for the faith. You gather together with your fellow saints like we are this morning. And you hear the news that a letter has arrived from none other than the Apostle Peter himself. The Lord's dear friend and one who you know is commissioned in establishing and proclaiming the message of the gospel that you have believed. This realization would immediately fill you with a hope, a sense of encouragement to know that you are not forgotten and it would create an eagerness to hear what he had to say. So in as much as the opening line, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he has established his authority with what he is about to say. He has established that what he is about to say is a message from the Lord himself. So who are the recipients of this letter? The recipients are Christians in northern Asia. If we continue in verse 1, he says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. They are called the elect exiles. The Greek word translated as exiles, or perhaps in some other translations, strangers, pilgrims, sojourners, or some other synonym. This word means a temporary resident, a refugee, and in this qualification, or sorry, in this context that we're speaking of, it qualifies the title of elect. The word elect can be translated in some of your translations, you might see it being translated as chosen. And this identifies the recipients of this epistle as a chosen people who are strangers. So the elect exiles are a chosen people who are strangers. It is clear from several references in this epistle that these believers are estranged from their communities because of their distinctive Christian lifestyle. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He writes, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Further, flip over to chapter 4, starting in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So we see their lifestyle has separated them from the world around them. They have become estranged from their communities because of their Christian lifestyle. They are exiles of the dispersion, Paul says again in chapter 1, verse 1. This word... Dispersion comes from the Greek word diasporia. I don't know if that's exact right pronunciation, but it's a common word that we hear and that is used in the Gospels. It is a term that is used for the dispersing of the Jews throughout the world. They are scattered. That's another way this word is commonly translated is as scattered. They are scattered throughout the nations and into foreign culture. And I believe Peter uses it in a different context though here. Not specifically that they are scattered and exiles amongst these nations. But Peter writes in chapter 1 verse 17, If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The implication here is that their earthly life their stay on earth, which leads us then to believe that he's not talking, that he's talking not about people who are strangers in an alien culture as much as people who are strangers on earth itself. So when we are reading 
his opening sentence to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in these different provinces, we see people who are referenced as exiles, as strangers, or as John MacArthur puts it, as aliens on the earth itself, not necessarily just within their culture where they are living. John MacArthur goes on to say about the dispersed exiles, he says in chapter 2, verse 11, the verse we just read, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And again, the alien and stranger here seem to be the person who is in an environment that is foreign to his nature and it is doing war against his soul. So he's not concerned to talk about a Jew who is nationally an alien as much as he is concerned to talk about a believer who is spiritually an alien. This is a much wider audience, which would certainly include some Christian Jews as well as the Gentiles in these provinces. The Jews, perhaps, were in the minority. When we look at the book of Galatians, He speaks of a lot of these different churches in this area, and we recognize that there's many Gentiles in these churches already, so he is not specifically just talking about the Jews being dispersed into these areas, but as the churches as a whole, the Jew and the Gentile, the believer. We would assume that the Gentile provinces to which this epistle is addressed would also verify that there are many Gentiles in these churches receiving this letter. So what this is saying is not, to you Jews who are scattered throughout alien countries, but rather, to you Christians who are aliens in the earth. Again, MacArthur continues and he says, true aliens, you are true aliens and strangers and pilgrims. You don't belong here. The church is a group of strangers scattered throughout the world away from our true home, which is in heaven. End quote. Peter is writing to Christians who are exiles in this world. He's addressing the church. The church, again, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are provinces that were part of the Roman Empire during the time of writing this epistle. And Peter is writing to Christians dispersed among these provinces. And if you look at the map in the back of your Bible, obviously everybody's will be a little bit different, but if you have some time later on even, take a look at it and you'll see where these names are listed and how far and widespread they are. So we know this is a wide-ranging audience that he is writing to. And this letter would have been intended then to be dispersed as well amongst the different churches. And copies would have been made as the original church would have hung on to theirs, made copy, passed it on to the next place, to the next place. Hence also why we often see so many different copies of manuscripts for the same book, for the same letter. In this manner, these letters were copied and scattered abroad amongst to the different churches in these regions to offer teaching and encouragement. There was a number of churches in these provinces. Revelation speaks of at least seven churches in Asia. Remember the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia in the book of Revelation? As well, Paul's missionary journey in Galatia lists multiple cities where churches are started as well. And these are only two of the provinces that Peter addresses here. So we can safely conclude that there are multiple churches in all these provinces. So these Christians being dispersed as exiles among these foreign lands filled with unregenerate people. Multiple churches, multiple locations, many miles. And so Peter, when he uses this phrase, It is an important phrase, the exiles of the dispersion, when he speaks of the elect exiles of the dispersion in these provinces. It depicts the normative state of any follower of Jesus so long as he or she remains in this world. We are exiles. We are sojourners. We are scattered abroad in this foreign land that is not our ultimate home, for we have our citizenship in heaven. And as we saw in the prologue to First Peter, I preached a few weeks ago, 
these believers were facing persecutions and sufferings. Suffering was the price they paid as a result of living their faith. So Peter writes this epistle then to encourage them and to point them to their living hope, as we see in verse 3. That we have a living hope. And then to teach them how to face and endure and see through their suffering. Verse 2, he starts with the phrase, according to, following up on verse 1, where he speaks of to those who are elect exiles. And in that sense, that term elect here is qualified in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. So they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We come here to an oft-contested and much-despised word for many in the Christian church. Yet a word that finds its very basis in the sovereignty of God as revealed clearly in the Word of God. This word, elect, or in some translations it is translated as chosen, it literally means to be chosen out, to be selected, a recipient of special privilege, and in the current context that we're reading here, chosen as inheritors of God's promises. Read chapter th- uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. One commentary notes and quotes the Bible teacher and scholar A.W. Pink. He once began a sermon by saying this, I am going to speak tonight on one of the most hated doctrines of the Bible, namely that of God's sovereign election. Pink goes on a little later to say, God's sovereign election is the truth most loathed and reviled by the majority of those claiming to be believers. Let it be plainly announced that salvation originated not in the will of man, but in the will of God. That were it not so, none would or could be saved. For as a result of the fall, man has lost all desire and will unto that which is good, and that even the elect themselves have to be made willing. This coincides well with our Lord's own words in John chapter 6, verse 44, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is hard for man to acknowledge that our salvation is solely an act of God. We want so desperately in our fallen state to receive some of the credit. We struggle with this doctrine because by our human standard, it does seem unfair. Is God unfair? No, He is not. God is never measured by our human standard, especially by our human standard of fairness, which is marked by our fallenness. We should not be so foolish to assume that we, as fallen, sinful creatures, have a higher standard of fairness than our perfectly holy, righteous God. The Apostle Paul addresses this mindset in his letter to Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 9 already, please. But he addresses this mindset when in one of his most controversial teachings in chapters 9 verse 11, uh, chapter 9 through chapter 11, sorry, he begins by challenging our human thinking on fairness or injustice. In chapter 9 of Romans, starting in verse 13, Paul says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, But Esau I hated. 
What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Here's his response, very important. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me this way, or like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand? Then we quickly flip over a couple pages to chapter 11. And he sums up this portion of Scripture in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. God's fairness is not measured by our ability to comprehend his ways. But it is based on his character as revealed in his word. Many teachers regarding on the aspect of election. They speak of it, and we know that we are called as believers to repent, believe the gospel. We are responsible for our own sins. We are responsible to live in this way. But we cannot deny the teaching of election that God has in His Word. And sometimes we struggle and wrestle trying to make the two work together. And we come up short. And there is a reason for that. Because we cannot comprehend the mind of God. But we cannot discredit what His Word says because of our lack of comprehension either. Because God's fairness, again, is not measured by our ability to comprehend His ways, but rather it is based on His character and as He has revealed it in His Word. So we dare not hold God to our standard, but recognize that God measures us by His standard. That is the beauty of the Gospel. We fail that standard. But Christ met it perfectly. And in that, we have a hope. We have a standing before God because of what Christ did. So the idea of being elect or chosen, and we will go into it a little bit more because I do believe it is a foundational part of this letter. Peter uses it so specifically in this sense to speak of who we are. Exiles of the dispersion, that's the earthly status. Elect, that is our heavenly status. So the idea of being elect or chosen is not foreign to the student of God's Word. It is the same term used multiple times for Israel, as seen in Deuteronomy. Why don't we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, says, For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. Speaking of Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That Sorry, that was verse 6 of chapter 7. But we'll flip over to Deuteronomy 14 as well. So, Maybe flip over to that already there. So God was not sitting in heaven 
hoping that some nation somewhere would believe in him and choose him so that he would have a people. No, he chose them. He set them apart to make them a people for his own possession. As we see again clarified in Deuteronomy chapter 14, this time in verse 2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God chose this group out of all the people. This is the group he chose for his possession. This teaching fills the Old Testament, and I don't think anyone in the church contests that. God chose a people for himself, and even though they rebelled, turned from his ways time and time again, God remained faithful on the basis of his choice and his promises to them. But, the question is then asked, is this true of the church also? Or does this refer only to the nation of Israel? First of all, let's make sure we don't change the meaning of this word, elect or chosen, and strive to be consistent in its application. Let's look at a few New Testament passages. Colossians chapter 3. As we turn to Colossians chapter 3, we'll look at several. I only put down a couple for the sake of time. But a couple references that Paul uses. So in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We are chosen to be His beloved, to be holy. He has set His love on us. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul is striving in his ministry again to bring the gospel to the elect and makes this point all the more clear in chapter 1 and verse 1 of his epistle to Titus. Here Paul says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth. Paul's mission statement is to bring the gospel to God's elect, those whom God has set his affections on in eternity past. So when Peter is writing here to the elect, he is writing to believers, those that make up the, make up the church. The term elect or chosen is synonymous with Christian, with being saved. What Peter is saying is, you may not be the choice of this world, but you are the choice of God. And this is comforting. And this was Peter's intention to be an encouragement to the persecuted believers everywhere throughout the land. I know and understand that this doctrine can be hard to grasp or create turmoil within our own minds. But rather than go on and on and look at many more passages, I just want to encourage you to feel free to ask, and we can guide you through this doctrine in a more in-depth manner. But in the meantime, understand the comfort it would bring. And the comfort it would have brought to the suffering believer to know that they were chosen of God and recipients of His eternal promises, no matter the temporary situation of suffering they would find themselves in. MacArthur notes in his sermon on the same text, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he says, The reason God gave us the doctrine of election was to tell us two things. One, He is in charge. Two, He is so gracious that to those of us who could never have earned it, that we ought to spend our eternity praising His glorious name. The doctrine of election is not given to us to confuse us. It is given to us to devastate our pride and to elicit our praise. End quote. 
So in what do we find the basis of our election? Peter says we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here again, language is important. We have established that our election, now let's look at the basis or the origin of this election. According to Peter's introduction, our election is based on and finds its origin in the foreknowledge of God the Father. So let's clarify. God's foreknowledge does not speak of Him looking through the tunnel of time to see what decisions we make in order for Him in eternity past to react to us in the future. This, in fact, would then make us sovereign as we are then the determinate cause of God's actions, even before we existed. That is why I strongly reject that notion with God looking through the tunnels of time to see what decisions will these people make. First of all, it insinuates that God is learning. God is already all-knowing. He does not look ahead to anything to learn new information. Then he would not be all-knowing. And again, if that were true, then God would in eternity past have been reacting to our decisions before we even existed which would then make us sovereign over Him. Surely, we can see the immense trouble this kind of theology would create. For it makes God our puppet, even in our state of non-existence. So what then is meant by the term foreknowledge? The Greek word translated as foreknowledge is defined as previous determination, purpose. In this text, it is qualified as the foreknowledge of God the Father. So it is the previous determination and purpose of God. This noun relates not just to divine foreknowledge, but also to divine decision. And it is best understood as further defining the basis of the elect status of the recipients. It speaks not of an awareness of what is going to happen, but it clearly means a predetermined relationship in the knowledge of God. Foreknowledge means that God planned before, not that God observed before. And in this way, God has predetermined our salvation in His foreknowledge. According to Peter, we owe our full identity as elect exiles to the mysterious plan of God, by which we are separated for salvation that we may not perish. God's foreknowledge is then the first cause of salvation. Not our future decision. God's foreknowledge is the first cause of our salvation. He knew before the world was created who would make up the elect. And in this way, our salvation is then set on the counsel of God, revealed in His grace and not by our works or merit. If our salvation is founded in the origin and basis found in His foreknowledge, and He is the first cause of it, then it is not by our works or merit. Familiar passage, you don't need to turn there. You can if you want, but Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Actually, let's turn there because we'll be looking at another verse there yet in a minute as well. So Ephesians chapter 2, let's go there. It's a familiar passage, but let's read verses 8 and 9. Remembering, our salvation is set in the counsel of God, revealed by His grace, not in our works or merit. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God's election, according to His foreknowledge, destroys our pride in thinking that we somehow deserve His favor based on our merit. For His foreknowledge excludes every worthiness on the part of man. Our election is found 
in the unmerited favor of God. So what is then the effecting of this election? What actualizes it? What makes it real? Peter goes on. You can keep your fingers in Ephesians chapter 2 there. But in 1 Peter again, Peter goes on. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Our election. Peter attributes the cause to God's grace in his foreknowledge. He would have us to know it. Calvin says in his commentary, by the effects, for there is nothing more dangerous, sorry, he would have us to know it by the effect, for there is nothing more dangerous or more preposterous than to overlook our calling and to seek for the certainty of our election in the hidden prescience of God, meaning His mind, which is the deepest labyrinth. Remember, Paul in Romans 11, we do not know the mind of God. He goes on, Therefore, to obviate this danger, Peter supplies the best correction. For though in the first place he would have us to consider the counsel of God, the cause of which is alone in himself, yet he invites us to notice the effect by which he sets forth and bears witness to our election. That effect is the sanctification of the Spirit, even effectual calling. When faith is added to the outward preaching of the gospel, which faith is begotten by the inward operation of the Spirit? End quote. The Spirit carries out the role of consecration or setting apart which means, which is the means by which election is actualized. So again, the Spirit carries out the role of consecration or setting apart, which is the means by which election is actualized. Election, the plan of God, becomes reality in our life by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So again, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of of the Spirit. This sanctifying work is from the same word from which we get the word holy. And it means to be separate, to be set apart, to be consecrated. And we see here that it is the Holy Spirit that produces this sanctification, this separation. It is the Spirit that comes along and sets us apart, makes us holy and consecrates us to God through the work of salvation. The Christian life begins by the Spirit. It continues by the Spirit through us. Romans chapter 8, 11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in in us. So this sanctifying work is by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit does the marvelous work of setting us apart and producing the fruit of the Spirit within the life of the believer. But he goes on and he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, the next phrase here, for obedience to Jesus Christ. The nature of our election is that God has chose us apart from any outside influence. The condition of our election is that we are exiles. That was the condition that these people were living in. You know, we are exiles of a foreign land, this earth. We are citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven while we remain on this earth as exiles. The source of our election is the foreknowledge of God. And it was, in his mind, as one commentary put it, in his mind, he knew it into reality, and he knew it into existence. It was based on his knowledge that these things came to be. So what then is the purpose of our election? It is quite simple. Peter says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. If you're still in Ephesians chapter 2, this is where I wanted to continue in verse 10. 
Verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, that no one may boast. Then in verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's workmanship. He created us in Jesus for good works. But listen to this. God prepared them already beforehand. Even in that, even in our living according to Scripture, even in our obedience to His Word and to His command, to live on this earth as He has set an example, we still are to give Him the glory. Because He prepared these works for us, that we should walk in them. So salvation is, by definition, a life of obedience. We have been set apart by the Holy Spirit that we may obey Christ. Again, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And though we obey so imperfectly, we strive towards this obedience in a desire to imitate Him, Jesus, and to pattern our lives, our thoughts, our actions, after His example that He has set forth in His Word. Paul writes in his epistle to Titus, in chapter 1, verse 11 to 13, Paul teaches us, The grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. He's training us to obedience. This is the effecting work of the grace of God. It has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This is the grace of God. The grace of God is not that grace which saves us and then says, now go live. Do whatever you want. It does not matter. You're under the grace of God. That is not the grace that Paul speaks of. This grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The Apostle John makes this point in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Familiar verse again. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. We are called to obey Christ. And our love for Him is evidenced in our keeping His commandments. This is the sanctifying work of the Spirit to effectualize this election in the life of the believer unto obedience. It trains us into a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. And then for that next phrase, for the sprinkling with His blood. This phrase, sprinkling with His blood, I had to do quite a bit of digging to get a bit of a grasp on it. But I think I can clarify it a bit here. And it is actually a beautiful part of this passage. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. It is a metaphor drawn from the covenant ratification In Exodus 24, so when God made a covenant with man, blood would be shed, and that blood would ratify, meaning effectualize, make in reality, seal this covenant. So this is a metaphor that Peter draws from the covenant ratification in Exodus 24, where the following pledge of obedience, sorry, where following a pledge of obedience, the people were then sprinkled with sacrificial blood. This event is referenced twice. Let's look at some scripture in this. Let's go to Hebrews first. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 18 and 19. 
And there's two references in Hebrew regarding the um, text in Exodus 24, where we'll go to after. But in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 18 and 19, it says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Let's flip a page or two, depending on your Bible, to chapter 12 of Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, also references this. But now from our New Testament perspective. And to Jesus, excuse me, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now let's flip back to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24, we'll start in verse 3. We'll read to the end of verse 8. Moses came and told all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. When he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will do these words. Sorry, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So what are the main points pulled out of this text? In verse 3, Moses proclaimed to the people the words of the Lord and His rules. And the people responded that they would obey. Verses 4-5, to Moses then wrote these words down. He built an altar and sent men to offer burnt offerings. Moses then threw half the blood against the altar and put the other half in basins in verse 6. Then he took this book of the covenant, after all these words and rules had been written down, this book of the covenant, Moses took, and he read it to the people, and they responded again with the promise of obedience. All these things that you have said in verse 7, all these that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Then Moses took the blood in the basins and threw it on the people, and in this way ratifying the covenant of obedience with God. It was a promise of obedience to obey God's word. Now we see a little bit in this phrase that Peter uses, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, the ratification of this covenant. To quote John MacArthur again, he says of this, the primary purpose of sprinkling blood was to consecrate, to obligate the parties in the covenant. There was a bond being made between God and the people. Now follow this. You don't want to lose this because there is a tremendous, thrilling conclusion to this, as MacArthur says. There is a bond made between the people and God. The people are promising to keep His Word, and the blood sprinkled on them indicates their part of the covenant. But Moses also said that he sprinkled blood on the altar. The blood on the altar indicates God's part in the covenant. Sprinkling the blood on the people symbolized their commitment to obedience, and sprinkling the blood on the altar symbolized God's commitment to faithfulness. And I believe that it is exactly what Peter had in mind. 
that is the only place in Scripture where you have that connection between obedience and sprinkling of blood. And Peter, of course, being a Jew, and knowing that passage well, finds in it a tremendous parallel for the Christian in the matter of election. End quote. The sprinkling of blood on the altar is seen as the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Where Christ offered His blood for the sake of man, satisfying God as He dies as a perfect atonement for our sin. And He brings men into a covenant of obedience that is sealed in His blood. So the purpose of our election for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, which again, this phrase just puts the weight of this covenant, the promise as a believer of the church, those that make up the church, to be obedient to Christ, to obey His word no matter where it will take us. And Peter is establishing that foundation as he's about to address these believers are going through these turmoils, sufferings, trials. And he's reminding them of their covenant with God through the blood of Christ. We are consecrated by the Spirit to be obedient to Him no matter the cost, no matter where life takes us, no matter the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We have made a covenant to be obedient to Christ. Peter wraps up his greeting in the last part of verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. He's summarizing the result of this election by using the customary New Testament greeting that we see in many of the epistles. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. We see, in a sense, in this simple greeting, the cause and effect of the whole gospel of our salvation. The cause of our salvation is the unmerited favor of God bestowed upon sinful man. It is His marvelous, magnificent gift of grace. The effect of this salvation, the effect of having received this gift of grace, is peace with God. Where though we toil and suffer during our exile here on earth, as foreigners scattered in this land, we know the result of God's grace that has been lavished on each one of us is we are no longer at enmity with God. We are no longer His enemy. We are at peace. And this peace has been made by the perfect sacrifice of God's own Son according to His own plan. This is the foundation of our living hope that he speaks of in the next verse, verse 3. This is the foundation of our living hope as we face, as did the Christians in Peter's day, trials of various kind. This status of who we are, our heavenly status, our identity in Christ, is the foundation of hope that we have to endure our earthly toil, our earthly journey. And this is the underlying support for Peter's encouragement to the churches. God is in control. And God is for you. If we are His children, if we are adopted into the family of God, not only is He in control, but He is for us. He is on our side. We have that confidence with which we can look at the trials and struggles of this day that we can look at and we can say God is on our side. We have a perfect Savior. And He has made peace between us and God through His sacrifice and a covenant sealed by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we come before you again this morning. We thank you 
for your word and that we can look at it, God, so freely. God, I pray that these words that have been taught today, Lord, that you would take that which is true, Lord, and just implant it in our hearts and minds and help us to to weed through the stuff and to test all things that have been said, all things that have been taught, Lord. Test it according to your word. Help us to worship you, God, in this manner, to be obedient to your word, to obey your commands, and God, to live in this realization and the reality that we are your children. We find our identity as citizens of heaven, not in our earthly citizenship where we turmoil, where we strive to move forward sometimes. But God, to find our rest in the fact that you have made a way, that you have offered salvation in such a way, God, that we have been made at peace with you. Help us to glorify you in that thought. Pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.